Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia. I'm your host, Derek Lemons, Director of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology and Associate Professor of Religion. You're listening to Season 1, which is dedicated to the topic of rapid religious change. Today, Tanya Lerman chairs a panel consisting of Divka Primawardana, John Bolesky, Courtney Hanman, Rachel Scott, and Joseph Helwig. This panel is dedicated to the anthropology of rapid religious change. Lovely. Good morning. Thank you very much. Thank you to Derek for the invitation to join this illustrious panel. I'm really honored to be a, a member of it, and uh, good to see all of you bright and early. Uh, the t- title of my paper is Continuities of Change, Traditional Religion and the Convertible Self. The theme of this conference is rapid religious change, as we all know. The central question put to us was, why do religious beliefs at times change very quickly, and what kinds of societal impacts do these changes have? What I want to do in this paper is to take a step back and avoid addressing that question, but ask and try to answer what I think may be more fundamental. My interest here, let's say phenomenological or existential, is the question of how religious change is lived What is the lived experience of changing religious beliefs? How is it that humans experience religious change? I begin with these alternate questions because of how checkered the anthropological record is with mismatched understandings of change. What seems revolutionary from one perspective may be normal or routine from another. One thinks, for example, of anthropologist Edmund Leach, who in his classic Political Systems of Highland Burma notes that when a small Kachin polity becomes part of a Shan state, it will appear to an outsider that the Kachin have become Shan. This may be, but to the actor, Leach writes, quote, this change may be hardly noticeable. It is only the external observer who tends to suppose that such shifts must be of shattering significance. James Scott gives us many examples of people whose sense of self is so constituted that what strikes us as radical change may be perceived by the actors themselves as routine. Such people who are comfortable with change, who are malleable, pliable, flexible, flexible, are found especially, according to Scott, on the margins of state power. You'll see this argument especially in The Art of Not Being Governed, where Scott calls attention to people with plural, porous, and fluctuating identities, Senses of self where shifts from one mode of being to another are less ruptures and radical changes than ordinary and par for the course. Scott refers to this as a plasticity of identity and argues that, quote, before the advent of modern statecraft with its territorial administration and mutually exclusive sovereignties and ethnicities, such ambiguities were common. This plasticity, this essential ambiguity, is also what I found among the Makua of rural Mozambique, among whom I've conducted ethnographic research over the last decade. This is a people also historically marginal to state power and a context where Pentecostal churches have appeared. However, seemingly unlike everywhere else, here the churches have arrived, but they have not thrived. I want to make the case that it's important that we attend to Pentecostalism's occasionally ambivalent reception 
among the Makua, for example, for the simple reason that the Pentecostal failure to flourish on occasion is also part of the story of global Christianity. If this is the starting point of my research, now you might be wondering, Derek might be wondering, what, if anything, I can say on the conference theme. It appears my story is one of slow religious stasis rather than rapid religious change, a story about the persistence of traditional religions and cultures rather than the radical rupturing rapid changes that Pentecostalism and much else about modernity is supposed to introduce. What's important to clarify then, to justify why I think I still might belong here, is that what I encountered in Mozambique was not simply people rejecting out of hand the newly arrived Pentecostal churches. Instead, people by and large embraced the new churches. Now it might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but the point here is that the people I worked with embrace the new churches but do not embrace them permanently. Their embrace, their commitment to Christianity is situational, and pragmatic. They engage deeply, so to speak, with the new churches, but without ceasing to engage deeply, as they always have, with their ancestor-based indigenous traditions. They oscillate between these two worlds, drawing on each sequentially, each on its own terms, as opportunities allow and necessity demands. This religious fluidity, of course, endlessly frustrates the Pentecostal pastors who demand a definitive break with the past. I suggest that, in fact, a break does occur, <clears throat> but just because the Makua cross a border from traditionalism to Pentecostalism doesn't mean they can't move back across that border. Just because people break from the past doesn't mean they can't break back to it. The pastors of the churches in my field site regularly lament that the Makua are impossible to convert properly. They have one foot in the church and one foot in tradition, the pastors regularly told me. The response of one of my interlocutors crystallized all that I had been observing. He said, quote, it's not that we have one foot in the church and one foot in tradition, but both feet in the church when we're there and both feet on our ancestral ritual grounds when we're there. What characterizes conversion in this case is not an inability or unwillingness to make a radical religious change, but an inability or unwillingness to make a single radical religious change, a conversion to end all conversions, a movement to end all movements. This is part of the reason that Pentecostalism appeals, in fact, to the extent that it does, because it is a tradition that from within allows for continual motion and dynamism, rises and falls between damnation and sanctification, ritual activities involving dance and frenetic movement, a theology of the Holy Spirit that blows where it will. But this is also part of the reason that Pentecostalism, with its rhetoric of rupture, fails to stick. The Makua have a long history of frustrating the top-down projects of self-conscious modernizers, whether agents of the state, development workers, or religious reformers, all of whom tend to favor the singular and the stable over what the Makua prioritize, which is the multiple and the mobile. For those among whom I worked, stasis is tantamount to death. To live is to move. The Makua are a fluid and flexible people. This is evident not only in their resistance to modernizing projects, but also from their own migration histories, rites of passage, agricultural techniques, all of which I describe at some length in my book as a way of elaborating a Makua model of change. And this indigenous model of change is key, I argue, to understanding the fluid manner with which the Makua engage Pentecostalism. 
The document elaborating this, con this conference's theme puts Pentecostalism there as a prime example of the need for scholars to attend to rapid religious change. Quoting from that document, quote, in a specific example, anthropologist Joel Robbins' ethnography of the Arapman showed that upon conversion to Christianity, the Arapman immediately ended their indigenous religion. Robbins and other anthropologists of Christianity began to promote rapid religious change as an anthropological theme and to theorize the process by which changes come about, end quote. From what I've said about my project, you might see that I also have found Pentecostalism to be empirically useful for theorizing change, but as should be clear, for vastly different reasons, most obviously because I work in a part of the world where Pentecostalism is not taking off and is not necessarily bringing an end to indigenous religions. While I appreciate that the anthropology of Christianity, especially of Pentecostal Christianity, uh, all that it has done to help foreground the theme of rapid religious change, the way in which I approach Pentecostalism in Mozambique points out three areas for further thinking. And let me briefly elaborate each. My first concern is over how rapid change is presumed to be exceptional. Exceptional to traditions like Pentecostalism or exceptional to the late modern moment we happen to inhabit. I like here what a team of mostly Francophone anthropologists, Jonathan Goetz, Yvonne Trotz, and others, has recently theorized as religious boutinage. Boutinage being the French word for bees buzzing about in pursuit of nectar. The author's point is that this kind of foraging is more normal, also among humans, than we tend to think, and that sedentarism or stability may in fact be the anomaly. About conversion, the authors write that religious change or religious transit is in many cases the rule rather than the exception. According to this model, we have not religious identities, but religious repertoires. The second concern I want to raise is a tendency to see change in general and religious change in particular as unidirectional. In a brilliant chapter of her book on the Giriyama of Kenya, anthropologist Janet McIntosh describes a model of religious multiplicity that is captured poorly by such terms as syncretism and hybridity. The critique of syncretism and hybridity is there also in the anthropology of Christianity. As a conceptual alternative though, McIntosh proposes not rupture or radical change, but polyontology, a term that in Macintosh's usage, different from other usages, conjoins the possibility of pluralism and the sense of compartmentalized essences separated by acts of rupture. Here in her own words, quote, religious plurality is not about reconciling Islam and Giriyama traditionalism into a new systemic whole, but about drawing on both religions while continuing to mark them as distinct. More than one religion may be used, but they are juxtaposed rather than blended." End quote. I liken this idea of drawing on multiple, religious, religious, on multiple religions while marking them as distinct, I liken this idea to multitasking or code switching or cognitive shifts. What psychologists tell us is impressive about multitaskers, to take that example, <clears throat> is not that they carry out multiple tasks simultaneously, but that they carry out multiple tasks serially, each in bursts of concentration with rapid movements between one task and another. The model I present out of Mozambique is a kind of religious multitasking or code switching where religions may be bounded, but people may be boundary crossers. Rupture may be enacted, but rupture may be repeated. It may even be reversed, 
Rather than unidirectional Pentecostal conversion, what I observed is Pentecostalism as one moment in an ongoing series of oscillations and alternations. The Makua accept the epistemology of disparate religions, introduced by missionaries, for example, but they do not accept the implications for identity. They accept the notion of separate bounded religions, but not without a willingness to tack back and forth between them and to do so with nimbleness and ease. This back and forth, this religious code switching is nothing less, if you'll permit me to say, than rapid religious change. The third concern my, re my research points to is the view, sometimes held at least implicitly, that rapid religious change really only pertains to modern and modernizing religious movements, such as evangelical Christianity. The argument of my own work is that radical change, if it, it, if it is to mean anything, must be there even in the seemingly most stable and traditional of cultures. Traditional religions, such as the ancestor-based practices and beliefs of the Makua, are often considered traditional precisely insofar as they lack the kind of dynamism and forward momentum so evident in things like Pentecostalism. What I want to call attention to, though, are the dynamics of discontinuity, the instances of radical change within so-called traditional cultures. What I mean to question is not the foregrounding of radical renewal in and through such things as Pentecostalism. What I question is the implication that there is something radically new about radical renewal. I see no necessary reason to associate born-again experiences exclusively with born-again Christians. Based on what I've been arguing, a case could be made that I'm committing the fallacy of what Joel Robbins calls continuity thinking, denying the possibility of truly radical religious change. To the contrary, I see my work ultimately not as rejecting the recent theoretical turn toward rupture, but as radicalizing it. For the women and men among whom I lived in Mozambique, experiences of change in migration patterns, agricultural practices, rites of passage, etc., are not merely byproducts of contemporary global forces. Rather, these pre-exist and prefigure engagements with those forces. Change, at least in this case, is the most traditional of things. My work can be read as an attempt to take rapid religious change seriously by rendering it less exceptional. Pentecostal conversion is potentially, and certainly in what I witnessed, less the introduction of radical change than a mundane extension of an already convertible way of being. Conversion so understood is less a matter of continuity or change than of what philosopher Henri Bergson called the continuity of change. What I admire most about the Makua, and here I conclude by going a bit meta, is that they reveal radical change to be not just a feature of one or another religious tradition, one or another culture, one or another epoch. They reveal rather existential, and I might suggest universal, insights about what it is to be human, about changing as a means of enduring, becoming as a mode of being, and converting as a way of life. Thank you. Okay, uh, for those of you who are familiar with my work in the anthropology of Christianity, this paper probably marks what you would call in wrestling my heel turn. So I apologize for anyone here who came for that. But today I'm going to discuss the most extreme possible form of rapid change, the potential moment when humanity itself transforms into something else. Now, anthropology has grappled 
with strange becomings before. And religious change is a category that is ethnographically well-documented. But what I am anticipating here are events that have yet to occur. And if and when they do occur, that occurrence will be in novel, perhaps unheralded forms. So we're challenged with the question of how to identify in advance signs of certain forms of change that heretofore have never been seen. Because of this challenge, I aim to think this, through, I aim to think this problem through by abducting theory from an unusual source, the early 20th century author H.P. Lovecraft. I'm not looking at this material itself as theory. I am certainly not looking at it as a moral exemplar. I'm claiming, though, that this material, in particular, sort of points to the effective resonances we might expect. Uh, my interest in Lovecraft follows, strangely enough, from earlier work on religious transhumanism. Now, now transhumanists consciously work towards imminent and imminent technological and social change. Many of them anticipate something that transhumanists, both secular and religious, refer to as the singularity. The singularity would be a moment when artificial intelligence surpasses the mental powers of humanity. In mathematics, a singularity demarks the point where an equation breaks down and can no longer be plotted. In transhumanist parlance, the singularity is the moment where machine intelligence asymptotically approaches infinity, making the future completely unpredictable. These new intelligences will be, hopefully, machines of loving grace, to uh, quote the poet Richard Brodigan, and it will allow humanity to exceed itself and overcome all limits, including death. Now, I don't want to belittle the idea of a technological singularity, but we should also be open to the possibility that the changes that would be wrought would be less eschatological and more along the lines of mutations or destabilizations. That's because these looming technological changes could potentially make us no longer human. This claim might seem to be a local and ethnocentric part judgment, and perhaps a dangerous one. There's a very bad history associated with claims that some population is not human, after all. In this case, though, what I have in mind is something completely different. We're discussing technological possibilities that, at least in theory, seem to go far beyond engineering the kind of technological prothesis that Freud wrote about in Civilization and its Discontents. Rather than make us more powerful humans, they would change the nature of cognition, communication, and embodiment to such a degree that we would become other. An example, the philosopher David Rodin has observed that a relatively simple technology, such as brain-machine brain interface, could work in ways that would remove mental privacy, a sense of individuality, and even possibly individual mortality. The claim regarding this nascent technology may sound fantastic or alarmist, but three things should be noted. First, brain-machine interface is an already established, if somewhat crude and evenly distributed technology. Second, other than the engineering challenge, and that is kind of like an other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you think of the play kind of comment, but other than the engineering challenge, there's no reason why these interfaces cannot be linked to one another, creating something like an artificial corpus callosum, joining not just different hemispheres of a brain, but instead separate brains. Third, the point Rodin was trying to make was not a prediction about a specific technology, but a test case to warrant the philosophical claim that the post-human turn might also be an inhuman turn as well. Such linkages are just an example of one of the many ways, some perhaps unanticipatable, that our humanity could be either overcome or undone. 
I don't want to take anything away from the anthropological wisdom that the sense of personhood and self can and do differ radically between different human collectivities. But these technologies suggest not a change in personhood or self, but rather their erasure or undoing. There's more. It appears that at the current moment, we're on the cusp of not just one singularity, but several different enchained singularities. We might think of these other crises as singularities, but they are, and as much as they also contain imminent tipping points past which we cannot see. We're at the edge of an ecological singularity, global warming, a political singularity, the crisis of the liberal state, uh, the rise of ethno-political nationalism, an economic singularity, unequal distribution of wealth, the possible end of labor, and this is just a partial list. I could probably kill all 15 minutes. Um, these singularities are not all doomed to have a negative outcome, but many do seem threatening. And because of both the enchained nature of these singularities and the rapidity with which we seem to be reaching an inflection point, the future appears to be both unreadable and disturbing. Technological transformations will likely coincide with mass extinction, radical disparities in wealth, and the collapse of any historically recognizable form of governance. This is the kind of rapid cultural social change that we need to also keep in mind. The question then is how to think of this anthropologically and how to think of this in the key of religion. The riddle is one that cannot be solved merely through ethnography and as much as it demands an anthropology of something that has not yet occurred, something that may build quickly and take us unaware, and finally, an anthropological study of an event where at least part of the species may become something other than anthropos. And it would be best if we could think of this in a framework beyond Christian millennialism, as there is no guarantee that an event would take that form. Further, this is something that's best anticipated in advance rather than identified retrospectively. It's far more important for us to sense a change like this in the air rather than to have who or whatever is left afterwards to retrospectively comment. Faced with these issues, some anthropologists have suggested that we turn to speculative fiction, and specifically science fiction, as a way of modeling the kind of, quote, extrapolations, intensifications, and mutations, close quote, I'm thinking of Matthew Wolf Myers here, that we might expect. It certainly has an appeal in a scenario planning kind of way. And turning to science fiction has an additional benefit. The literature often stands as a form of critique, and hence can be seen as a kind of an outsider art version of social theory. I read and appreciate the anthropological work done with science fiction. However, the use of science fiction as a possible frame locks us into science fiction scenarios. And given the unknown nature of the effects I'm concerned with, they may be expressed in unanticipable forms and be heralded more by vague sentiments and inarticulable fears than by the fulfillment of some obvious futurist plot. What's more to say is I, which is to say that I have doubts that a science fiction informed account captures what Raymond Williams would call the structure feeling of the looming moment. Things feel far darker, far full of menace, and far less certain. So instead, the literature I would turn to for thinking through this problem would not be speculative fiction, but rather weird fiction, a varietal of the genre of horror. This is a genre that has a wealth of authors that one could draw from, but to grasp the kind of imminent and imminent rapid change I've been speaking about, I would turn to the influential early 20th century author, H.P. Lovecraft. For reasons that would take too long to sketch out here, Lovecraft is increasingly a target of literary, critical, and philosophical attention. Figures such as Graham Harmon, Donna Haraway, and even Gilles Deleuze have addressed Lovecraft. 
I'm not thinking of Lovecraft for the cartoonish, cliched, tentacled monsters that are commonly associated with him, or at least not for those monsters alone, because body horror and radical physical alterity may be one of the things that are in the cards after all. But rather, there are other reasons for seeing his work as a productive place to start when reflecting on what may come. The first is his mythos. The body of alien creatures and even more alien gods that are referred to as the Cthulhu mythos, and which he referred to as Yogg-Sothothry. Lovecraft was a confirmed atheist, but was also the opinion that for psychological reasons, religion was essential. His solution was to build an entirely fictive religion, one that could perform much of what he felt was the affective and imaginative work of religion, but at the same time, its falsehood allowed it to be held in an ironic distance, preventing any mistaking of religious truth for actual truth. Um, what he produced was entirely virtual open source religion. Mythos is not the only fictional religion to find an audience, of course, but it is arguably the original intentional fictional religion. And while some of Lovecraft's presumptions about what constitutes religion are parochial, his mythos is at least broader than, while still recognizable to, mainstream contemporary Euro-American sensibilities regarding what constitutes religion. The same sentiments that gave birth to Lovecraft's atheism also informed his naturalism. Lovecraft's rejection of transcendence meant that he had to construct a form of religiosity that had no connection to the supernatural. Uh, though often his uh, aliens and inhuman gods were mistaken uh, as divine because of their powers. And this atheism and naturalism also came along with a concomitant rejection of morality as having any metaphysically derived ethical charge. This was a world that contained the monstrous, the alien, the inhuman, but not the evil. The idea of ironic religion, virtual religion, and an entirely naturalistic religion alone makes Lovecraft interesting to think. And the religion's queer afterlife and everything from chaos magic to pseudo-archaeology uh, is worth it attending to as sort of like cultural facts. But there's other elements that are important as well. One is that his work is full of strange becomings and destructive knowledge. Either accidentally or intentionally, in his work, humans transform into other species, shuffle off identities and bodies, and gain information and capacities that distort and undo them. The second is his work is well suited to the chronological breakdown that these enchained singularities threaten. Lovecraft often wrote on a cosmic scale, dwarfing humanity by contrasting our species with aeon-long-lived entities and events. This is important because the looming singularities that we're faced with often involve what ecologist Timothy Morton refers to as hyperobjects, phenomena too vast to chart in size and temporality or by any intuitive grasp. Think, for example, of how long it's going to take the millions of years for uh, Earth's styrofoam to break down. Lovecraft's sense of proto-deep time allows for this to be imagined, if only metaphorically, and can serve as an exercise in describing the unthinkable both intellectually and effectively. But Lovecraft's also interested in time at a joint, the kind of broken or distended temporality that he attributed to Einstein. It's possible that the singularities were that were triggering consists simultaneously of accelerations of more than human entities and decelerations in the form of creating millennia-long scars and debris, causing a concomitant breakdown of human, any human capacity to measure time. Under these conditions, quickly evolving novel events may appear to be a return of ancient conditions, with retreating glaciers being seen as the awakening of dormant pathogens, uh, dystopian governance as the recovery of earlier forms of totalitarianism or feudalism, uh, global warming reappearing as a return to the Carboniferous or even Silurian age, or with human extinction or complete transformation as merely the re-instantiation of an older pre-human order. 
broken time, it would be good to think, and Lovecraft exceeds in broken time. And now, this is the most difficult part of the paper for me. There is Lovecraft's racism. This is no light problem. To say that Lovecraft's views on race were problematic would be to sell it far too short. Lovecraft was a political reactionary and a vile racist, even by the standards of his age. Um, he seemed to have a particularly disgust for the Poles, for instance, which uh, I have mixed feelings about. Lovecraft's racism was complicated. It's not every anti-Semite who marries an immigrant Russian Jew, even if the marriage was unsuccessful and short-lived. And Lovecraft scholars debate to what degree he left his racism behind as he shifted from his reactionary political conservatism that dominated most of his life to the socialism in the closing years of his life. But for reasons... But there's no reason to believe that Lovecraft ever abandoned his racism entirely, and for some reasons they think, and for some claim that uh, his racism was instrumental to his entire literary over. Lovecraft's racism, ironically, gives his thoughts an anthropological cast. Uh, he has a very key interest in human difference. But Lovecraft's racism also makes him more valuable to this project in very disturbing ways. This is not to defend his racism, but to point out that his dangerous fantasies about race have the same formal logic found in inflection points or singularities, no matter how different their substantive content may be. Lovecraft felt that the wave of immigration to America in the late 19th and early 20th century was a demographic tipping point of another kind, the eradication of a New England Anglo-American culture that he deeply identified with. His racial hysteria gives a picture of a society an atmospheric apocalyptic note of being right on the cusp, where the settler culture he identified with was either about to be lost or effectively had been lost. As a substantive claim, this has to be rejected. The events on the horizon are not about race, or if they are, they're about race as a proxy or mask for some of the harder-to-articulate buckling or metastasis. And think here of Shirley Membe's uh, essay, Becoming Black of the World. But formally, this perverse anxiety and sense of looming menace captures the atmosphere of a system on the edge of breakdown but also captures the strange allure of such a world, too. Reading Lovecraft as an intimation of possible natal transformation suggests that we should be on the lookout for reactionary political formations that are simultaneously mixed with a deep desire for the very event which is found so unacceptable in the first instance. Lovecraft's literature is full of social collectivities, institutions, and individuals that are as enthralling and enthralled as they are fearsome. The same thing that makes the sort of emergent or transforming entities or states of being in Lovecraft unthinkable and unspeakable also make them a wonder, compulsively capturing the attention of his fictional artists, aesthetes, and intellectuals. I am almost done. And this observation brings us back to why this is an issue of religious cultural change. In much of Euro-American thought, the sublime is usually articulated either as religious or conceived of and communicated about in religious language. And it seems that the changes we are on watch for and which we find in Lovecraft are on the order of the sublime. The temporal breakdown of scale, the failures of any adequate representation, the other alterity of the beings or state that we may uh, uncover, create, or become. Lovecraft's alien beast and post-human entities are thought of in religious terms in his writings despite their naturalistic origins because they are sublime. It's not so much that I necessarily uh, expect this sort of sublime transformation that Lovecraft can help us think effectively uh, will actually appear through the medium of religion should they ever come to pass. By definition, these novel events and entities will take forms that we should, that we should not have a ready language for. But the language that will be evoked and the sentiments that will surface as we learn to speak of the unspeakable will be effectively structured in ways that, for better or worse, 
will resonate as religious no matter what actual calc is used to articulate them. premise of the panel that hasn't gotten a ton of attention so far um, is that there's a considerable split between anthropological and theological arguments about the possibility of radical change. Secular sciences, whether natural or social science, aim towards gradualism when they theorize change. Uh, and just like Charles Lyell stretched out the postulated age of the earth from thousands into millions of years in order to allow for a slow process of geological formation and evolutionary mutation, Social and cultural change happens in the long durée, or it doesn't happen at all. In contrast, Christian theologies allow for, in fact invite, the possibility of rupture, the kind of Saul on the, Damas on the road to Damascus, change of heart or change of society. Joel Robbins argued over a decade ago now that we might think about what a theory of radical change would look like in anthropology. And I'm not sure that we've really managed it to great, any great extent. We've got much better ideas about what it means for people who are Christian to live in a world of always possible rupture. Uh, both Tanya and John have given us very vivid portraits of the metakinetic and the miraculous uh, sort of moments of, of um, intervention. Uh, but these are not necessarily theories of radical change so much as theories of how Christians understand the world as being open to the possibility of radical change or radical interventions into this world that need not be knowable from the past. In some ways, the area of anthropology that has been more successful in cultivating a theory of radical change has been the work premised on the Anthropocene, the looming secular environmental apocalypse that is calling into question the nature of human agency in geologic time. So one way to approach this panel would be to look at these anthropocenic attempts at theorizing radical change to continue with Robin's framing of the issue, and I think John actually did some of that just now. But I'd like to instead tackle the other side of the story that frames the panel, the one that says that theologians are good theorizers of radical religious change, because I worry that this lets the theologians off the hook too easily. Um, I don't personally want to pretend too much knowledge, uh, real knowledge of actual theological principles on this point, um, but I do know something about the theologian's poor cousin, the missionary, and about how missionaries have enacted their theories of radical change in missiological practice. So with the caveat that some might not think it's very fair to equate high-minded theologians with the low-minded missionaries, I'll spend the rest of the time looking at how missionaries have perhaps learned some terrible lessons from anthropologists about culture and the conditions of cultural change, radical change. My argument is that while missionaries in colonial and post-colonial Papua New Guinea theorized and tried to enact rapid religious change in their fields of labor, they tended to do so in only the most peculiarly conservative contexts. Rapid religious change was possible for the New Guinean deeply entrenched in his or her traditional way of life, in the remote rural context of Sweden agriculture and the monolingual context of their native tongue. Rapid religious change was specifically not considered possible for the New Guinean living in those contexts that even anthropologists would have to consider conducive to radical transformation, urban, massively multilingual laborers camps at the dawn of the post-war era, filled with local people communicating using a pigeonized English. In other words, missionaries in 20th century colonial New Guinea considered only fully cultural subjects to be the subjects of missionization that could result in rapid religious change. 
they took the very form of anthropological person most associated with the discipline's inability to theorize rapid change, the native in situ and at home within his or her culture, as the only person capable of change in the proper sense of the term. The missionary's model of rapid religious change in the 20th century is parasitic on anthropology's theorization of cultural continuity. It's opposite in the sense that opposites are completely alike in always but one. The question then is why the classic colonial image of the cultural other was both the site of anthropological continuity and missionary rupture. So before discussing New Guinea in particular, I want to offer two quick snapshots of more general missiological models that circulated among American evangelicals in the 20th century. In the early 2000s, the Wycliffe Bible translators had for a brief time a downloadable game on their website called the Buanda Fusa Challenge that gamified the missionary experience. Uh, in this and similar games that used the format of a choose-your-own-adventure story, you would encounter different problems or situations and had to make choices about which path to take. As you made these choices, a few different scores would move up or down. You had to keep track of donor support and strength points, but the big question was how many converts you were responsible for. The game is no longer available to download, and I personally no longer have a machine that runs Windows 95 um, <laughs> to give you a sense of the time frame we're dealing with. But I played it um, back in the day and took notes on it when it was still was. One of the um, questions that the game asked was what language you um, this was, I found uh, someone who, um, there's a site that archives like all um, games that have been online. And so there was a couple of, someone was sort of working through the first couple of screens of the game. And this is all I could find that still exists of this game online. Um, so that's what these are from. Uh, okay, one of the questions that the game asked was what language you wanted to use to try to convert people. If you choose to use a lingua franca that was learned as a second or third language, you initially had skyrocketing convert scores, but soon after you were informed that your converts all left the church and their miraculous transformation was just a mirage. They apparently were the makua that uh, Defka was talking about. Um, the makers of the game seemed to want to emphasize the way that speed of conversions varied with the quality of conversions. If a missionary takes the quick route, learning only the local trade language rather than a vernacular language of a specific ethno-linguistic group, then that missionary will be wasting his or her time with some quick conversions that will only last as long as the missionary is around, if that. The long, difficult work of learning a local vernacular language spoken in rural villages rather than urban centers would in the end pay off with lasting spiritual change. Good conversions could happen in the blink of an eye, but only if that was preceded by extended work on the part of the missionary. Wycliffe's methods came in part from the models of evangelical missiology developed in the mid-20th century by Donald McGavern. Uh, McGavern is the son of missionaries to India and become, became one of the most influential American evangelical missiologists in the 20th century. He taught at Fuller Theological Seminary and wrote a number of important books outlining what came to be known as his model of church growth. Less focused on language as such, McGavern was especially interested in, in an anthropologically inspired structuralist account of indigenous cultures as the keys that would unlock access to authentic conversions. McGavern argued that it was universally true that people like to stay within their own culturally defined groups. Homogeneous units was his not especially evocative term. And he wanted missionaries to develop missiological practices to facilitate that insularity. In this case, the missionary would have to travel long distances to remote places in order to reach people living within their homogeneous unions. 
McGavern argued that the Holy Spirit's inspiration works best when it works without the effects of other cultures, that other cultures, in a sense, obscure that inspiration. Like the Wycliffe example, McGavern felt that a sort of light switch-like experience of change of heart was not just possible, but a likelihood if the right conditions could be created. And again, like the Wycliffe example, this experience of rapid religious change depended upon a lot of setup work from the missionary him or herself. Learning the language, yes, but also traveling to a distant locale, learning the culture, getting to know the people, interrogating one's own Christianity to try to strip it of Western influence. Local people had to stay in place among their linguistic compatriots, speaking the local language and doing traditional things. Into that context, a missionary could come for a number of years and ideally do nothing but tell convincing stories about Christianity and the Bible. And if the missionary has managed not to disrupt too much, then the Holy Spirit may eventually help convict a number of local people in a rapid experience of culture group conversion. In post-colonial Papua New Guinea, the missiological method, this missiological method has resulted in missionary groups spending a disproportionate amount of time and resources with the most rural and remote communities. The anthropologists go there too. Wycliffe, or SIL International, as it's known in the country, piggybacks off of the dense network of airstrips and landing areas to fly their Bible translators into these remote fields. In colonial New Guinea, especially in the years just before and after World War II, when the aviation and road networks were far less extensive, this emphasis on the most remote and rural populations was even more pronounced. We can look at the organization of the Lutheran missions in New Guinea as a good example. The Neuendettelsau Lutheran Mission that first started work in the 1880s was an early formulator of the sort of in-situ conversions that McGavern and SIL would later extend. Christian Kaiser argued that New Guineans needed to be converted as culturally New Guinean subjects rather than as westernized denizens of mission stations. The Lutherans' ability to engage in local language Bible translation work was hindered by the devastatingly high number of languages spoken in New Guinea. It's usually estimated at 850. There's a map that tries to sort of schematize that visually. Um, uh, but regardless of which workaround they were implementing at the time to get around the fact of all of these languages, the emphasis was consistently on trying to evangelize people in rural and remote locales. Lutheran missionary efforts were in fact so focused on rural remote vernacular language speakers that they completely missed the chance to evangelize to the people they were transporting themselves to the coast. Like its Catholic counterparts, the Lutheran mission initially funded a portion of its work in New Guinea through coastal copra plantations, coconut plantations. Um, there's a couple, I don't know if you can see where those two little dots are. Uh, New Guinean men worked on these plantations, usually for extremely low wages, living in multilingual house workers' housing. Towns were also filled with other, quote, labor lines, labor housing, for local white-owned businesses or for the colonial administration. Here was an available group of men who were within easy reach, men who often already had some connection to Lutheran missions, and men who were known to the missionaries in charge of the plantations. Yet it's not until the 1950s and Frank Laubach's visit to New Guinea that the idea of evangelizing to the men in the labor lines was given concerted attention and thought, really was even considered a possibility at all. Frank Laubach arrived in New Guinea to teach his method of literacy training to unwritten, for unwritten languages. Laubach was at that point regularly traveling the world to demonstrate his literacy methods, which he promised could teach adults to read in a few short lessons. Laubach came to the Lutheran headquarters just outside Lay City for the first stop on his New Guinea tour. He wanted to do a demonstration of his method for administrators and others in Lay. 
But the Lutheran mission did not know who Laubach could teach there in town. Eventually, the president of the mission, John Cooter, who's actually on the right there, sorry, I know it's a really terrible um, version of that picture, decided to take an as yet unheard of position to treat some of the laborers as students and indirectly as objects of evangelism, since Laubach's mass, mass literacy methods were part of a larger Christian evangelical project. Not only would laborers be treated as students and potential converts, but the language for the demonstration would be pidgin English. Long held up by the Lutherans as a kind of non-language incapable of cultivating a Christian subjectivity, or really any subjectivity at all, it was a language for barking orders in as far as most colonizers were concerned, Pigeon took a great leap forward with Laubach's visit. It was only, and really just because he needed um, to do this sort of demonstration project and they, they needed a couple people who all spoke the same language. That was the only same language there was what that a bunch of people shared was Pigeon. It was in fact only in the wake of his visit that the Lutherans began a mission program for urban laborers. It's after his visit that they start um, what in the mission archives is known as compound work. In other words, evangelistic work at labor compounds and a more concerted push to make Pigeon part of their evangelistic program. So note the ironies then of a mission group always in desperate need of funds to support its work in rural and remote parts of New Guinea. The mission runs plantations in coastal semi-urban areas to help fund the work in more remote locales. The mission brings workers from those remote locales to the coast to work on the plantations to fund the missionaries going to the rural hinterlands, but at no point did anyone think that the men who had been brought out from those same hinterlands could be objects of evangelistic attention themselves while they were at those plantations. The very people who, by certain measures, were experiencing the most social, uh, radical social changes, young men from the hinterlands of New Guinea coming to urban centers to labor on colonial plantations, were exactly the people ruled out as objects of evangelistic attentions. Lutherans instead insisted on the possibility of radical religious change happening only in the sorts of spaces that had the least social changes, as if the denial of coevalness, as Fabian talked about long ago, was the condition of possibility for Holy Spirit inspiration. Missiological assumptions about the possibility of radical religious change were parasitic on a highly conservative anthropological assumption of cultural wholeness and in situ taken for grantedness. Missiological models of change take on many of the same principles of anthropology in order to develop an account of miraculous intervention. The Holy Spirit works best in the jungle, it would seem, where anthropologists see continuity everywhere, but, sorry, where anthropologists see continuity everywhere, in the jungles, in urban centers, or plantations, Protestant missionaries in colonial and post-colonial New Guinea who have depended upon structuralist models of culture and language from anthropology see transformation only in pristine conditions of romanticized remoteness. If anthropologists haven't offered up many models of rapid change, missionaries tend to allow it only in the most conservative colonialist frames the West invented. The theme of this conference focuses our attention on rapid religious change. This may lead us to consider what constitutes as rapid religious change, what the conditions for rapid change might be, and how we can situate these changes within a broader study of religion in particular places at particular times. In my own research on contemporary religion in Thailand, I have found that religious practices, doctrines, and narratives 
that reflect distinctive departures from so-called normative traditions are frequently situated, often deliberately, within historical frameworks that we might classify as invented, constructed, or reimagined. Historians Eric Hobswam and Hugh Ranger famously argued in their 1983 edited volume, The Invention of Tradition, that the study of invented traditions draws attention to the, quote, use of history as a legitimator of action and cement of group cohesion, end quote. This is particularly relevant to the historical study of nationalism, from the promotion of Scottish tartans for specific clans to the veneration of the Indian cow. The study of invented traditions has also been useful for sociologists and anthropologists in their studies of new religious movements. They have studied how claims of traditional origins have been used to legitimate new religious claims, stories, and practices. In my work with the Dhammakaya Temple in Thailand, for instance, temple apologists argue that the innovative meditation technique promoted at the temple, Wichat Dhammakai, was a method taught by the historical Buddha that had been lost for generations until its rediscovery by Luang Posot of Wat Pak Nam in 1916. Carol Cusack takes a different approach to the study of invented traditions by focusing on the appeal of invention, examining third millennium invented religions such as Jediism, Matrixism, and the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Cusack draws our attention to religions that, quote, reshape popular cultural discourses for religious or quasi or pseudo-religious purposes, end quote. Cusack argues, quote, that it is possible, even likely, to invent or join a movement knowing that it is not true and to later discover through experience that it is true for you, end quote. As Cusack notes, this quote dispenses the argument that the intentions of the founder matter, that a leader who preaches a falsehood can invalidate the faith of later converts. Religion is, to a large extent, about narrative and the success of the story, end quote. My presentation today explores the legitimizing force of tradition as well as the appeal of invention and the power of narrative in one rapid religious change in Thailand. If you have the opportunity to walk the streets of Bangkok on the first or the 16th day of the month, you will undoubtedly witness a flurry of activity around the hundreds of lottery vendors who have set up shop on the footpath, at religious shrines, and outside of Buddhist temples as the hopeful make their last minute predictions before the evening's lottery drawing. If you are not familiar with the confluence between religion and wealth in Thailand, the sight of lottery transactions at or near religious spaces may be surprising. But for contemporary Thais, especially those who live in large urban spaces, the sight is unremarkably common. A number of scholars, including myself, have written on the various connections between religious practice and economic success in contemporary Thailand. From the cult of amulets to magical monks, mega temples, and the spirits of deceased kings. One aspect of this religious economy, however, that has not been addressed within the literature is the emergence of a new network of spirit goddesses that collectively connote wealth 
and well-being. In this presentation, I will discuss one of these spirit goddesses, Zhao Man Nang Kwok, whose exact origins are unknown, but who may, according to Paya Anoman Rajadon, be linked to one Nangkwak, a small plant in Thailand that is thought to grant good luck and prosperity. In contemporary Thailand, the modern iconographic image of Nangkwak has eclipsed the plant. Images are made from a variety of materials, including wood, especially from the fig tree, wax, and plastic. Statues of Nangkwak are ubiquitous in small businesses throughout Thailand, and abulants and icons are frequently distributed at Buddhist temples. There are several different styles of contemporary Nangkwak images, but they all share the following characteristics. She is always, or at least 99.9% .9 of the time, dressed in chut Thai, traditional Thai-style clothing, and one or sometimes both of her hands is in the beckoning pose. The contemporary iconography of Nang Kwok directs our attention to the hybrid nature of her. She is at once a physical embodiment of one form of traditional Thai femininity, while simultaneously symbolizing globalization and change. While her clothing mark her as distinctly Thai, her pose closely resembles that of the enormously popular Maneki Neko, the beckoning cat of Japan that has become a global symbol for wealth and prosperity. In fact, statues of Nangkwak and Maneki Neko are frequently placed close together at religious art markets and on business shrine shelves. The beckoning hand gesture has become so popular in Thailand that some monks are photographed with this gesture for promotional materials, including temple displays and religious magazines. While the gesture is used in Thailand for various beckoning needs, including hailing a taxi or calling to a child, it has become a free-floating signifier for a particular kind of beckoning. It is an invitation to be linked with wealth and other meritorious blessings. Business owners across Thailand emplace images or prints of Nongkwok on shelves or other hard surfaces near the front of their stores in order to facilitate sales. Many of these owners make daily offerings of incense, soft drinks, especially red Fanta, and sweets to her and they chant a katta, a power-infused polyphrase, to procure blessings. While virtually everyone in Thailand associates Nang Kwok with wealth and prosperity, popular literature recounts two main versions of her biography. These stories circulate in popular religious magazines, mass market books, and on the internet. Each of these stories situates Nang Kwok within a different historical tradition, thereby granting her the status of a spirit that has had long associations with Buddhism and Thailand. Contemporary popular historical narratives about Nang Kwok establish legitimacy for her veneration and establish the link between Nang Kwok and blessings of wealth. One story places the origin of Nang Kwok in Buddhist India during the time of the historical Buddha. The other situates her narrative within the Ramakian, 
the Thai version of the great Indian epic, the Ramayana. As Andres and Lauser argue, quote, spirits play an essential role in bringing the past into the present, end quote. In the case of Nang Kwok, the past establishes the charter myth for claims of her economic potency in the era of global capitalism, and it links her to the authoritative traditions of Buddhism and Thai nationalism. The first biographical narrative that I will examine is the story of a young girl who meets two Buddhist monks and who is utterly transformed by these encounters. In this story, Nang Kwok, who is known as Supawadi, is the daughter of a poor merchant who lived in India during the time of Gautama Buddha. The family earned money through petty trade, but business was poor and they barely had enough to live on. One day, however, Supawadi's father bought a new cart and used it to travel to other areas to sell his goods. On one occasion, his daughter accompanied him and she encountered Pra Wasapa Terachau, an arahant, a fully awakened monk, who instructed her in the teachings of the Buddha. She listened attentively and received blessings for her and her family in return. She met him on several occasions. During another trip, she met Pra Siwali Tarachau, another arahant who similarly gave her instruction in the Dhamma and blessed her family. As a result of these blessings, she brought good luck to her family. Whenever she traveled with her father, he was able to sell all of his goods very quickly. This eventually led to great wealth for her family. The family was known not only for its wealth, but also for its high ethical conduct and generous gifts to the Sangha, including housing and transportation for monks. Following Supawadi's death, people began to pray to her for business success, and many saw their earnings increase. This version of the Nangkwok story is reproduced in countless magazines, book chapters, and internet sites. In this origin story, Nangkwok and her family embody the ideal for lay Buddhist conduct. Her acts of piety, lis listening to monk sermons and being an ethical person, brought wealth to her family who in turn used some of this wealth to support the monastic community. This story is embedded within common Buddhist beliefs about the workings of karma, about how religious piety can produce this worldly benefits from health, happiness, and prosperity to beauty and success in love. The second origin story situates Nangkwak within the Ramakian, the Thai version of the Ramayana, the great Indian epic about Lord Rama and his wife Sita. While there are several versions of the Ramakian in circulation within Thailand, none of them, to my knowledge, contain the story of Nangkwak. Within the realm of popular literature, however, loose associations are made that link this prosperity goddess to a story that continues to have political and cultural relevance in Thailand. In popular religious magazines and mass market books, contemporary writers situate Nangkwak within the story by drawing a connection between her family and a demon named Tao Unarat, who makes an appearance towards the end of the story in some versions of the Ramakian. According to these accounts, Nangkwak was the daughter of a great forest saint who was friends with Tao Unarat. In this version of the story, Nangkwak embodies the virtues of kindness and generosity as she aids the demon and his daughter, Prachand. These popular historical accounts 
do not recreate the entire epic, but rather offer only a snippet of the story that clearly situates Nanqua within the drama. What is the significance of this origin story that links a Thai goddess of prosperity to a famous Indian epic? The answer to this question may lie in the significance of the Ramakian in modern Thailand. For the past two and a half centuries, the Chakri dynasty has cultivated the association between it and the story of Lord Ram, the ultimate righteous ruler. All Chakri kings have, in fact, adopted the name Rama, including the current monarch, King Vajiralongkorn, Rama X. Nangkwak's association with the Chakri dynasty is strengthened by other claims as well. Some magazines and amulet vendors suggest that images and amulets of Nangkwak date back to the early Ratanakosin period, the beginning of the Chakri dynasty. Nangkwak's favorite drink, Red Fanta, in case you were wondering, was also purportedly the favorite beverage of King Rama V, King Tulalongkon. In fact, Nangkwak's images are also sometimes placed next to photographs or images of King Chulalongkorn, who is himself the focus of a modern cult of nationalism, progress, and prosperity. In this political context, the story of Rama, as told in the Ramakian, has become associated not only with the current Thai monarchy, but also with Thai culture and identity more broadly. Since 1902, the Ramakian has been a part of the Thai school curriculum. Today, tourists from all over the world flock to Thailand and see beautiful dance performances based upon the Ramakian. View the, mur the murals at Wat Prakal that reproduce this story and purchase Ramakian souvenirs such as puppets, masks, and prints. Tourist vendors commonly market these goods as quintessentially Thai. To associate Nangkwak with a story that is now intimately linked to Thai culture and the monarchy, therefore, is to place her at the center of the modern Thai ethos. Being a character in the Ramakian makes her Thai, and her personal sacrifice and bravery reflects the virtues of the ideal Thai woman. Her narrative in this respect resembles the modern biographies of Queen Suryotai and Princess Supankalia whose tales of bravery and sacrifice have recently become prominent within Thai historical discourse. New spirits and new stories frequently emerge within popular Thai discourse and literature. Some gain traction, like those of Nangkwak, while others create a flurry of interest only to be eclipsed by a new spirit or a new story a few months later. In these examples of rapid religious change in Thailand, historical legitimacy and creative invention work in tandem to fuel a vibrant religious economy. This draws our attention to the simultaneous appeal of change as well as to tradition. Thank you. Each of the speakers on this felicitous panel addresses the theme of religious change in creative and original ways. I admire their breadth of scholarship, the references that inform their papers, the perspicacity of their theoretical insights, and the depth of their ethnographic reflections. 
reading these papers was a real pleasure uh, for me, for which I thank them all. And I thank Derek Lemons, too, for inviting me to discuss them. So, so I want to summarize and analyze as best I can each presentation, contrasting it and comparing it uh, with the others to the extent I can. Um, I lack the time to offer precise thoughts on what a theory of religious change coming out of these papers might look like, but I will try to sketch a shadow of one because I've found these papers inspiring um, um, to that extent. Uh, and I hope we can uh, do some more of that during the discussion time we'll have. Incidentally, I'll address the author's work in alphabetical order, which for me reveals a tantalizing progression among them, so not in, in the order in which they presented. I'll begin with uh, John Bielecki. John models the longing and alarm people feel in this age of disjuncture on the work of H.P. Lovecraft. You ask, in relation to the conference theme, not how we should think about rapid religious change, but how rapid change evokes religion. What if religion, you ask, is the structure of how we imagine change, and, and in fact, of how change itself happens, rather than some ham-handed response to change that emerges after the fact as an epiphenomenon of it? To answer the question, you explore the notion of the singularity, that most radical moment of anthropological change, uh, the fusion and surpassing of the human with and by the mechanical, when technology becomes mythology, that is, religion, a boost as potentially liberating as salvation itself. But not all of its apparitions bear so much promise. Others are unambiguously catastrophic. Accelerated global warming, the triumph of totalitarianism and planetary plutocracy. How, you ask, can we see beyond such prophecies to rehumanize ourselves? To quote the police song. Here, you think, ethnography fails us because we use it to document what is and has been. In Lovecraft, you find an account of the widespread fear of what is to come. His work reflects the anxieties of our age, a disillusion with expertise, a distrust of difference, and a dread of the post-human present and future, all reminiscent of Lovecraft's monsters. Alluding to his horrors, which he configured in the religious trope of a pantheon, you warn us to be on the lookout in these times for an angst that welcomes exactly what we fear. A malaise, to quote you, articulated either as religious thought or conceived of and communicated about in religious language. Perhaps is, this is a source of the polarization of the public sphere so visible these days the inability to understand why some of us seem so eager for annihilation, both for others and for ourselves, just as Lovecraft's demons drive those who worship them mad. Which leads me to ask, what alternative do you see to such nihilism? And why isn't the narrative of it that you offer the very sort of myth you critique? Doesn't your account of this nihilism reflect a fear like the one we deplore in others, a mistrust of and fascination with, in this case, a reactionary public? Not that I blame you uh, for that mistrust. <laughs> Maybe we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Your analysis of comic fiction nonetheless offers a metaphor beyond ethnography for the fictional cosmos that so many people seem to inhabit these days and eschatology that recalls the most challenging tendencies of Eliade's model of the world's cyclical destruction and rebirth. Change, I infer, is about religion because religion, going back to Eliade, is ultimately about time. The question for Courtney Hanman is, 
What kind of time? You, Courtney, show how evangelization reflects an account of religious conversion that contradicts the assumption of rapid change. You found that missionaries de-emphasized ruptures, aiming for a gradualist approach grounded in the colonial assumption that so-called primitive cultures are static. We let theologians off the hook, you claim, when we presume they give us a theory of swift transitions akin to the conversions of Paul or Luther. Instead of just disjunctures, though, you see continuities. Disciples of Christ missionary Donald McGavern, for instance, believe that the Holy Spirit moves most in those best anchored in their cultural lives. People who benefit from the stability of the shared meanings that cultural anthropologists once ascribed to pre-modern societies. In contrast, and I'm, for those of you who are listening to this, I'm doing scare quotes with my fingers when I say pre-modern. So, um, uh, in contrast, McGavran thought that missionaries need time to learn indigenous languages in order to translate Christian idioms into local ones. Paradoxically, missionaries change as much, if not more, than converts do. Their approach led to contradictions in Papua New Guinea. The Lutherans who began working there in the 1880s, for instance, only began evangelizing Papuans on the coast in the 1950s. Missionaries at first ignored these Papuans because they had apparently lost their cultural homogeneity through colonial contact. Instead, these Papuans work on plantations, funded the evangelization of the, of, of, of the Papuans who remained in the purportedly pristine interior. Courtney, you wryly conclude, quote, that if anthropologists haven't offered up many models of rapid change, missionaries tend to allow it only in the most conservative frames the West invented, like the timeless indigeneity of, say, Claude Lévi-Strauss's cold societies. More scare quotes. Your point mirrors the less gradual turn in religious studies over the past quarter century from scripture and theology to what some have called lived religion, everyday practices by non-theologians, even missionaries. Your reversal of focus highlights an inversion of process. Missionaries were at least as intent on transforming themselves, it seems, as converting others. Do you think they did so in Imitatio Christi, I wonder? Were they not in some way trying to reenact the incarnation in a new time and place? Thus their attempts to adopt the language and habits of their host, hosts. To the extent that they embodied Christ's nearness to humanity, they seem to have expected humanity to accept their preaching with the least possible resistance. We might conclude then that the perception of the speed of religious change varies with the observer's position. As in physics, so with religion, time is relative. And according to Duvaka Primuardana, we can't both measure the speed of religious change and know its location at once. He approaches the issue by refocusing anthropology on religious experience rather than belief, mirroring Courtney's shift from theology to evangelization. Doing so, uh, Devaka, you claim better accounts for religious change since anthropology has been so poor at explaining change at all. A special concern here is the attribution error that Edmund Leach observed with regard to the Kachin of, of uh, Highland Burma. Outsiders thought they became Shan when they altered their political organization. Yet Kachin attached little importance to this change. 
they had a more porous and fluctuating sense of identity. Makua Pentecostals similarly failed to embrace Jesus with the same consistency that the rest of the world has, or rather, they embrace it without ending their devotion to ancestors. At church, they are God's children. When revering ancestors, they are theirs. Makua Pentecostals then can have their breach in Joel Robbins' terms and bridge it too. The result is a repeated oscillation between two kinds of movement, from ancestors to God and from God back to ancestors, without a single definitive Christian conversion. You suggest that the variegated selves behind such flexibility reflect the use of multiple cultural repertoires rather than a single cultural identity. Change here, you say, is the idiom of life. The Makua appear as existentialists, whose projects of self-fashioning adapt them to multiple worlds characterized by competing priorities quite apart from the all-encompassing nature of religion. And I agree with you. In fact, Jean-Lou Amsel and, and I published on similar cases for Muslim West Africa in 1990 and 2011, respectively. And it was Amsel who first used the image of oscillation. I just cited him. And I wonder, might an attribution error be at work here too? What if God and the ancestors have shifting but complementary places in a hierarchical cosmos? In Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, where I work, Muslim hunters revere an ancestor called Mani Mouri, a practice Salafi Muslims condemn. Hunters submit to God when praying as Muslims and to Mani Mouri when seeking protection on the hunt. God and Mani Mouri inhabit nested realms that all hunters must traverse at some point. Such shifts in ritual practice, therefore, strike me as more transactional than autonomous involving persons encompassed by and encompassing contrary forces, as in Louis Dumont's definition of hierarchy. In short, are tensions between God and Makua ancestors hierarchical rather than merely contingent, or at least hierarchical some of the time? Rachel Scott gives us a sense of what such a hierarchical cosmos might resemble. She introduces us to Nankwak, a deity linked to wealth who occupies a central place in Thai society despite her, posi her peripheral position in Buddhist practice. She is ubiquitous, appearing in Buddhist temples, on merchants' counters, and in the Thai version of the Ramayana, from whose hero the Chakri royal dynasty and current Thai king trace their descent. Indeed, Nang Kwak has multiple identities. She is the consummate shapeshifter, much like Lovecraft's monsters. Lutheran missionaries who learn local languages, and Pentecostals who revere ancestors. She is a woman, an entrepreneur, and a friend to monks, kings, and demons. And she embodies an ostensibly ideal image of Thai womanhood. Both men and women make offerings to her in exchange for that most fluid of values, capitalist exchange. Value. She therefore incarnates the hybridity of contemporary Thai identity, bridging global capitalism, Thai gender hierarchies, Buddhism, and cultural and political nationalism. Rachel consequently argues that Nang Kwok's ubiquity marks a period of political unrest and transition, spanning from the time of the Yellow Shirt protests in 2005 to the death and succession of the last Thai king in 2016 to Thailand's recent mass shooting just this month. 
You infer the current instability and, quote, the flourishing of neoliberal capitalism have likely fostered current interest in Nanquak. Like your colleagues here, you explore religion at a time of rapid change in relation to diverse, coexisting, contrasting identities, yet you place Nanquak at, quote, the center of the modern Thai ethos, appealing to her use by devotees to link as well as to separate disparate domains. She encompasses the contrary, or rather, again to um, refer back to Louis Dumont's notion of hierarchy, um, or rather, given her peripheral position in Thai Buddhism, she insinuates herself within multiple domains, not encompassing, uh, if you will, from uh, a bird's eye view, but um, from the ground up. She may then reflect more than aleatory hybridity. She seems instead to embody an alternative constitution of the nation state, a centripetal force that counterbalances current centrifugal ones. And nothing appears to prevent her from exercising a centrifugal pull should conditions change. Perhaps the Bakua in Mozambique do the same by repeatedly entering two realms that they distinguish. Just as missionaries in Papua New Guinea assimilated to, to the local conditions they encountered there, linguistic and cultural, before conversions could occur. And as Lovecraft's fiction help us discern the apocalyptic mindset of global illiberalism. In each case, an act of assimilation to difference provokes change. In this light, following John, religion is how we cross boundaries of identity, as well as their associated spaces, and I'm thinking here of Thomas Tweed's work. Um, these uh, identities and spaces being human and non-human, missionary and convert, Pentecostal and ancestral, and for Nanquak, more than I can repeat and still end on time. In fact, it may be too late for that already. <laughs> Such transits are diachronic because they are too unstable to last forever because human beings don't last. As a result, religion may be our best attempt to divine our way through such adjustments to measure the amount of pressure our being can take before we can or must shift our standpoints yet again or avoid doing so. If religion is the structure of change as per John, then it follows that the speed of such change is relative to the positions of those involved in it as per Courtney, and that as per Devaka, we can never foresee its speed if we know those persons' location or vice versa. And yet, no matter how fast that change occurs or to whom it matters most, it is always a matter of prioritizing some domains of experience over others, so that, as per Rachel, peripheral concerns can come to the fore, but in ways that reorganize the center. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology at the University of Georgia, I'm Derek Lemons. This panel convened at the 2020 Southeastern Regional Meeting of the American Academy of Religion. Thank you to Lily Baldwin who edited this podcast and to the John Templeton Foundation for funding the work of the Center for Theologically Engaged Anthropology.